At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 450th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is farming with an eye on the future. We're talking with Katie Critchley about building a farm community. Katie is the farm director of the farm at Agritopia and a longtime resident of the nationally recognized and award-winning Agrihood at Agritopia. She is also a founding board member of the Johnson Family Foundation for Urban Agriculture, which is committed to promoting and preserving urban agriculture throughout the state of Arizona. She has also been a part of the development team at Johnson Properties, maintaining and expanding their commercial holdings. Her last role at Johnson Properties was co-project manager for the award-winning craftsman community, Bar None, located at Agritopia. Welcome to the show today, Katie. Are you ready to rock? Absolutely, Greg. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and tell us more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's important to really start with how I got to Agritopia in the first place. And it kind of helps explain why I'm the farm director. (laughs) (laughs) It was a Sunday afternoon. He's now my husband. He was my boyfriend at the time. We're driving around. Uh, We lived in Chandler, Arizona, which is a hop, skip, and a jump away from Gilbert. And um, we were kind of driving in, quote-unquote, the boondocks to look at model home communities. And we stumbled upon Agrotopia 15 years ago. We immediately loved it. It was this concept that was going to be this urban, you know, farm centered with homes in the area and a commercial use and a coffee shop. And it just sounded like too good to be true. But we immediately took to it and came back here 13 times before we put our earnest money down and bought a house. And in 13 times. 13 times. Wow. Well, it was it was a little bit expensive for what we could afford and we already had a house. We had bought we just bought a house in Chandler. So, we came, we kept coming back but there was something that was just drawing us here and we moved in in like May of 2004. And just b- briefly to, just so you kind of can understand this land, it's been continuously farmed for 90 years. The Johnston family bought it in 1960, and when they knew they'd have to give way to development in the 90s, they kind of birthed this idea of Agritopia keeping some of the farmland intact. And so they all, all four generations of Johnston still live here in Agritopia, and so we were really fortunate to get in in the beginning and get to meet the family. 
and we forged a friendship with them. But we continue, I continue to work in my regular day job. I was a paralegal for 10 years and I've been working with the family for the last nine years. So I lived here as a resident with a job down the street as a paralegal. And about nine years ago, Joe came to me and asked me if I would help him on a couple of projects. And that was kind of how I got started with the family. So I started with just researching projects with Joe to, oh gosh, property management to helping with projects. And then it kind of snowballed. And and really, I think what what was happening is we were trying to make Agritopia better than ever. We The farm had always kind of existed there, but we were always trying to figure out like how the farm interacts with the community, how it interacts with the commercial businesses here. And so I spent a lot of time as an outsider of the farm, just kind of observing and watching. We had gone through several different farmers, several different farm iterations from leasing the land out to a farmer, and nothing really seemed to be working. And Joe, when he kind of had this farm in mind, he really had three pillars that he wanted to keep intact. And that was, he wanted to be be a producing farm, a legitimately producing urban farm. Mm -hmm. He wanted it to be beautiful. He wanted people to come there and just ooh and ah. And he also wanted to be able to educate people with the farm. And we weren't really hitting on all three of those pillars. And it's really hard because the margins in farming are small. And we've got this huge landscaping bill, right? Because we're just trying to make this place as pretty as possible. And then we were really failing ourselves in the educational part. And so, you know, I kind of said to them, hey, you know, maybe what the family needs to do is create a family foundation, 501c3, and donate the land into that foundation. One, it's to so we can keep it in perpetuity Mm -hmm. and two, so we can start forging relationships and friendships with other 501c3. So we can hit all three of those pillars. It really kind of made us think about the farm a little bit differently. And the family seemed to be on board with this idea. So I think it was three years ago, we created the foundation. They donated the farmland of which we have about 11 acres into that foundation and that was kind of the impetus for kind of starting to push the reset button on the farm. Look at all the things that we had done that had worked. Looked at all the things that we had done that didn't work. Mm-hmm. And I say we, it wasn't stuff I was really hands-on with. I had just kind of seen it from the background by, you know, working here. And we just decided to have this foundation put it in there and then push the reset button, figure out what we were going to do. We were ending a relationship with a farmer and we needed to find a new farmer that kind of got going. We weren't really sure what we wanted to do with the foundation. We knew we needed it so we could continue our mission for education. Right. And so we got a new farmer in and at first it seemed great, but it wasn't the right fit. And we all kind of knew this for sitting at the board from our perspective, that this wasn't the right fit. And so I think, I can't even remember, I think the board asked me, would you be interested in being the director? You seem to have a lot of like opinions about what might work or what might not work. Uh Initially, I was super hesitant, like, oh no, what did I just 
do. <laughs> and I, I tried to talk myself out of the job. I'm like, I don't know anything about agriculture. I have a I have a degree in anthropology from ASU. Like, what what is that going to do? I know nothing about farming. And so after, like, uh, after, like, kind of kicking it around for a month, I was like, you know what? what? What do I have to lose, right? Just I've always felt like I've made decisions from my gut, mm-hmm. and I've trusted my instincts. And sometimes I've been wrong, but sometimes I've been right. So why would this be any different? And that was kind of, that was two years ago, I started as farm director here at the Farm and Agritopia. So that's kind of, kind of where I, where it puts me today. Wow. So let's talk about Agritopia in general. We're not just talking about 11 acres here. That's, it started out (laughs) as a big piece of land, right? Yeah. The Johnston family actually had about 400 acres that they were farming primarily sugar beets, wheat, alfalfa, and cotton. Mm-hmm. Like I said, in, in the 90s, they knew they'd have to give way to development. ADOT had already decided they were going to basically put the 202 freeway cutting in to the, the property. Mm-hmm. And so that was part of the major land plan. So what they decided was, okay, we know we're going to have to sell some of that off. Joe really wanted being kind of like the visionary of the family, like kind of leading the charge in terms of what to do with this family farm. Always wanted to do a restaurant in the house that he grew up in. And um, he really wanted to preserve the agriculture. It's such a rich part of Gilbert's history, agriculture, and and for the state of Arizona in general. I think a lot of people don't really understand how important agriculture is to the state. And so he said to his wife, like, I'm going to build a restaurant in the house I grew up in, and I'm going to preserve this farm. And she's like, you're crazy. (laughs) No one's going to go there. And he was like, well, what if we lived there? Or like, what kind of place would we want to live in? And that was was the impetus for starting Agritopia, really. So they did it. They just, they did a land plan. They carved out what they thought was going to be the urban farm. They partnered with a developer. And so today, Agritopia is 160 acres with 452 homes. It has a K through eight private school, a 117th room assisted living facility. Wow. Um, We have, yeah, we have four restaurants a winery, a brewery, and some shops all on property. And then we have two other commercial parcels that were sold off that we didn't develop, but still remain part of the Agritopia community. So we have an LA Fitness that's going to be opening up here soon. A Dutch Brothers coffee place with the drive-thru is on the ticket, along with some other like services type shop and another restaurant backyard taco. So we have a lot to offer in this like 160 acre community. We even have another 20 acres left to develop of which we're kind fingers crossed, knock on wood, we should be under construction with that mixed use project in second quarter of 2019. So even though this neighborhood, the first resident moved in in 2003, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a work in progress. I mean, we've been, the Johnston family has been incredibly intentional on trying to create a modern village like you would see in Europe, you know, where you've got this small town or village centered around agriculture, which is so important to our daily lives. And I think we've kind of lost that or forgotten that. And yeah. it's, just a, it's just a throwback. 
<laughs> you know? Wow. There's so many places we could go with this. Let's start talking. Oh, I know. What's it like to live there? You know, I would say 90% of the time, it's fantastic. I'm kind of the poster child for this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I have four generations living here. Um, Your myself. family does? Yeah, my family does. So I've wow. got like my parents, my in-laws. I have a brother-in-law that lives here. My mom's best friend lives here. Like it's ridiculous. We are kind of the poster child. But the funny thing is that we're not the only ones. And the Johnstons aren't the only ones that have four generations that live here. You see a lot of fam- like family collections here or friend collections. And it's people that are generally social that kind of believe that it takes a village. I mean, not to sound corny, but Mm -hmm. it does. It's the kind of neighborhood where it goes beyond just borrowing sugar from your neighbor. Mm -hmm. It's people that you go on vacation with. It's people your kids play together and you can, you know, you can get a ride to the airport. Like it's, it's a just a really fantastic. Everyone knows each other. They wave. They say hi. hi they, they do things for you if you need help hanging your Christmas lights. I mean, it, it's fantastic. It's a community. It is. It's a community, and we all, you know, we we know what each other does for a living. We support those things. I would say that there is. A downside to that is that if you're not social and you're you like to be anonymous, it's a little bit harder. Don't move there. You can be anonymous. Yeah, don't right. move there. You can't. You can be anonymous and live here. It's just that people might think that that's a little odd because this neighborhood was intentionally designed for you to know your neighbor and to yeah. be friendly and to really support the businesses here and the activities that go along here. All right, let's talk about the farm now. Okay. My sense is is that the farm is kind of integrated into the entire 160 acres, at least the farm concept. Right. I would say that, I mean, primarily the farm, the farm is broken up into little pieces, maybe not built so we can be crazy efficient, mm-hmm. <laughs> which at times can be frustrating, but definitely integrated so much that if you're on the major street, you can definitely see there's farming activity going on here. Maybe it's not as integrated into the neighborhood as much as you would like or think, but again, there would be some efficiencies, inefficiencies if that were the case. But I will say this, only place where you can see all the different facets to Agritopia is on the farm. So there's a center pathway that is is like the heartbeat of the community, which is you're standing on farmland, Mm -hmm. but you can see all the different activities of Agritopia going on. So you can see the commercial part, you can Mm -hmm. see houses, Mm -hmm. you can see the school, you can see the assisted living facility. And so to me, it has one of the best locations. It should be obvious to someone that lives in the community that there is a working farm there. So, yeah, I guess that I hope that answers your question, Greg. Let's talk about the working farm. Talk to me about that. Yeah, yeah. So it has, it's not without its challenges, and I think we'll get around to that. But we have about, we're probably close to four acres of row crop Mm -hmm. that we can grow vegetables in. We're currently not growing all of them. We're basically, when I started this position two years ago, we took a pause and we're slowly, gradually working our way up to growing in all four acres of that. So we have some room to grow, which is lovely and fantastic. And then we have another about three to four acres 
of orchard crops, mm-hmm. of which we have fabulous, mature, medjool date palms. Mm. Um, and we harvest about 3,000 pounds of dates each year. Wow, really? Yeah. And we have another citrus and peach orchard. Our citrus and peach orchard has about uh, a little over 100 citrus trees. And then peach trees, we actually last year planted about 100 new peach trees because our current peach production, our peach trees were basically in the winter of their life. So Mm, we're down to about... 24 mature peach trees. And again, we planted another hundred last year. So we're we're excited to see those get going because peach season here in Arizona is special and fast and can be pretty profitable if you play your cards right. (laughs) Right. So the crops that you have are stone fruit and dates and then row crops. Right. And citrus. Yeah. Stone fruit, citrus, Mm -hmm. dates. Row crops. And then we have we have a community garden. We have forty nine community garden plots that we lease out. We're we're really fortunate that we're usually all filled up year round. Uh-huh. And it's a really fantastic location for us on the per, on the commercial production side to go and see how other people are basically backyard gardening. Right. You start to see like how some people manage pest control or how they're managing their weed problem because we definitely have, you know, ragweed for days here and Bermuda grass and, and all these problems that are really can be very um, limiting or detrimental to our planting. I guess we should probably mention that we're an organic farm. So we're USDA certified organic. Oh, and so wow. we have a lot of, yeah, we have a lot of challenges with that. And most of them come from weed suppression and pest control but yeah. we, we do our best to manage it mm-hmm. yeah so is the community yeah. garden organic as well is that included yeah we it it does not include that as part of our organic map but we do ask that our community gardeners and it's part of their lease that they grow organically and yeah it's just hard to police it we're out there all the time and we'll take things from people's gardens or let them know if, if we feel like it's a detriment. But most people that are in there, they understand and they want to grow organically. So it's never really been a major problem for us. It's just a really great place to see how people are faced with the same challenges we are and how they combat them. Yeah. Because we have, we combat them differently. And so sometimes, or we'll see something growing. Like one of our community gardeners is successfully growing asparagus and doing really great at it. And, you know, it being like a 10-year crop, it's kind of awesome to be able to just cut and come again, cut and come again. Mm-hmm. So we're looking, hey, they're, they're successful and we've been watching them for the last couple of years. Maybe it's something that we want to attempt to grow. So yeah. that's always fun, too to see that happening. So you're constantly learning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's farming, right? You never <laughs> right, know. Exactly. You, you, exactly. you don't have, you, there's no way you can know all the answers mm-hmm. and every season, every crop teaches you a different lesson. So wow. that's pretty much makes up our, is the makeup of our farm. I mean, we do have some pathways that are part of that 11 acres. So mm-hmm. it's not, just straight up a giant square of 11 acres. But if you read the survey of the square footage, that's about what it 
amounts to. And yeah. then we have a, like a barn that we keep all of our farm junk in and we have a little honor system store, farm store that we sell our fruits and veggies in, out of along with other local food products that we're really excited about sharing with the world mm-hmm. and and supporting. So it's it's kind of you know, it's not a full-blown grocery store yet. <laughs> <laughs> I like that yet. But it serves some staples that you would need. You certainly could whip up a meal if you stopped by and bought a few things. So oh. that it services the community too. Mm-hmm. And we're really fortunate of our location. When I came out here in 2003, there this seemed like the edge of the world. It didn't seem like we were close to anything. But since then, it's grown up big time, and I just ran the demographics, and we're 32,000 households in a three-mile radius. Wow. We have plenty, yeah, we have plenty of households to tap, mm-hmm. and and honestly, there's no way we can grow for 32,000 households, but I know we have room to grow on the farm. I know we can get better and do better, and I think we can grow a significant amount of food changing the way people buy things really so we're standing in the middle of the field let's just call Mm -hmm. it an 11 acre field if we look to the west i've been there so if you look to the west you got your assisted living community and behind that is houses and you look to the north and there's a school and more houses when we turn around what do we see because there's this beautiful restaurant community there tell us about that because that's yeah that's electric it really is (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, I think it's it's electric for, I think, a couple of different reasons. One, it's the homestead area of this farm. And so we have all the buildings that were have been here since the Johnstons basically bought it or built it. So, like, I office out of the homesteader's house built in 1927, and the our flagship restaurant, Joe's Farm Grill, which has been featured in the Food Network and Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives once before. And it is the house that Joe grew up in. So he got his wish. He got to build his restaurant in the house that he grew up in. And then we have the coffee shop that used to be the tractor shed. And then we have Bar None, which is this fantastic 8,000-square-foot Quonset hut that was literally used to store farm junk, and stored grain or wheat, I believe. And now it's turned into this beautiful, like, tin cathedral of makers. And if I ran down the list of makers, you wouldn't believe that we packed them all into this little space. And that is, we have two restaurants, one that's plant-based, the Upgraded Kitchen. We have Fire and Brimstone, which is the wood-fired pizza joint. We have a brewery, 12 West. We have a hair salon. We have a woodworker, a florist, a gunsmith, Joe's machine shop, and full graphic design studio with a letterpress. So we packed that all into 8,000 square feet. And so it's a community unto itself. Mm -hmm. It is two outbuildings, one being our barn building and the other being a garage east, which is a a winery. Mm -hmm. And so it's a community unto itself. They all collaborate together. The farm 
sells vegetables to all four restaurants on property and to the winery and to the brewery. And then they collaborate among each other. And it's just a really fantastic space. It feels good. So it's like a little micro community inside a larger community. So how does it make you feel to live there? It simplifies a very complicated existence Mm -hmm. in this day and age. I don't have a commute to work. I mean, my commute really is a quarter of a mile, maybe, maybe nice. an eighth of a mile. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like it's, it's pretty much non-existent. I, the only reason why I get in my car every morning is because I have to drop my kids off at school. Like I, they don't go to the school in the neighborhood. Um, they go to a charter school outside. So I have to drop them off. And that's really the only reason why I have to get in my car, which is nice. I don't know. I just, you know, I'll be working. It's a blessing and a curse because I'll be working and I'm in this area that I just described to you. And I run into people that I know all the time. I'm sure. You know, I'll run into a neighbor or I'll run into someone that works here. And it's really fun to to work in a community with a lot of creative people. And sometimes that also is stifling because you can't get your like regular work done (laughs) because you're always thinking of like how can we make this better yeah yeah you're always trying to make it better right and it's really fun to see someone come here for the first time because their eyes kind of light up and they get it they want to be a part of it they think it's special and it is i mean it is it really is a gem in arizona and it's a gem to to gilbert in general like we, they've kept all of the trees here. I mean, we've got trees. We've got one of the tallest silk oak trees in the state, like on our property. We've got these beautiful like pine trees that have been here since the 60s and eucalyptus trees that have been here since the 1960s. Like most places would have tore all this down, but the family was committed to keeping this as authentic as possible. Wow. So... so- you mentioned when people come there and how they feel. Do you have one instant, something happened that it it just told you that, oh my gosh, this is where I'm supposed to live and this is why this place is amazing? Do you have one of those in the back of your mind you can share? No, Greg, there's so many of those. It happens all the time. Mm-hmm. I've probably even taken them for granted. I've just kind of filed them mm-hmm. away and the... Mm-hmm this is just best. Why would I want to live anywhere else? I mean, the kind of relationships that I've made here are, they're priceless. They're just priceless. Oh my gosh. I'm envious. I am definitely envious. Oh, please. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's not always cupcakes and rainbows. I don't want you to think that like, right. I mean, still life happens to you. Right. Of course. But I do feel like I have a good community and support system. And most of the time we work out things together. And that I think is rare and also cool. Like no one's an island here. And I think that that's how I try to approach this. Mm -hmm. Like there's no dictatorship. There's let's work on together and see what we can make of it. Wow. How cool. Thank you so much for sharing all that. Oh, yeah. No, thank you, Greg. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that (laughs) failure, and what you learned from it. Oh, Greg. 
<laughs> I don't think you have enough time in your podcast. For that. <laughs> <laughs> so many failures. I try not to think of them as failures, Greg, because I not. think they're all learning experiences, of right? Of course, exactly. That's why this, we ask this question. Ah, this is why this is so important, right? Yep. Yeah, I mean... Everything from not properly amending soil, having failed, like, germinations. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a perfect example. Okay. So the greenhouse. We have the small little greenhouse on property, and our water source for that greenhouse is the well. Mm. And we have a well here. We have a couple of different water sources, but that one happens to run off, off the well water. We had some plants growing in the greenhouse. In the summer, which was also a mistake because it got too hot in there. But we were giving it a shot. (laughs) We had the swamp cooler going and went away for a weekend, right? I had somebody else watering the plants and came back on Monday and found all my plants were dead. And I was like, why are they dead? Because the greenhouse was hooked up to the well site and the well would frequently go down in the summer and no one called to tell me that the well went down. I lost all of our plants. I will say this. It's one of our most important assets in farming, right? Is water. Especially here in Arizona, Mm -hmm. right? Especially in Arizona. And so it makes me think about water all the time. Where is it coming from? How much are we going to get? How much do we need? How much are we going to get? What's the quality of that water? And so it's something that's like constantly on my mind. And all, and all I can think about is like stale germination. It's, it's the one thing I always go back to. Well, if this didn't work, why? Water. Like, okay, let's make sure that our yeah. water source was, you know, always so, looking to that. Right. And then this season, I'm having, I'm having the same problem with soil. Why is this stuff not moving like gangbusters? Like, mm-hmm. why am I not growing it like gangbusters? Well, I probably really wasn't paying attention that closely to soil. So soil, water, those two. So I think once I'm, like, again, I have no agricultural background. So this is all trial and error. Once you start, I think, to kind of dial those things in, like, we have great land. It's been continuously farmed on since the late 20s. We have this opportunity to really grow some fantastic things, but it's not, you know, there's so many different factors contributing to it, which is something that I really, I was aware of, but I now I'm really aware of it. Yeah, yeah wow. Good job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what do you consider your biggest success? I think my biggest success, probably comes from giving things time. I think my biggest success has been allowing people to do what they that they want to do or passionate about doing and allowing for someone allowing that space for them to do that and run with it. And I'll tell you the anecdote about our farmer because I think that that maybe that will make more sense and you know, we had um, when I took over I didn't renew a farm contract with one of our farmers. We didn't really believe that he was the right fit. And I really didn't have a farmer in in sight, except I had this guy that was volunteering for us, relentlessly volunteering, wanted to learn more, do more, wanted to be in farming. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of allowed him to be here. I'd call him up and be like, hey, we need help with you pick or we need help 
I can't even remember with like random things going to the farmer's market or we need help picking peaches, whatever, thinning peaches, whatever it was. And he was so eager and so, you know, available, but didn't really have the education. So I just kind of allowed him to be there and just experience it. And then it went from, I had no farmer to to asking him, Hey, I'm just going to grow like 10 rows of food. I've never really done it before. I know you work full time, but can you come and help me out and we'll figure it out together. And it will give you the opportunity to also see if this is something you really enjoy. Wow. And when you, I think when you open that up to allow someone to, to try something on that they're passionate about, mm-hmm. then it just got him excited and he was here all the time. And it got to the point where I felt like he was starting to gain confidence. He was starting to gain knowledge. He had had, you know, some successes and failures behind him. And I thought, well, what? let's just give this a shot and see how it goes. And he's been our farmer for the last year. Wow. Right. So th- I think that's my greatest success story. I was going to say that's a huge success because one of the things that we're mostly missing in our culture is actually having motivated farmers. Right. So what drives you? First, I think, and foremost, is trying to make Agrotopia the best it can be. Mm-hmm. The name is Agrotopia, Agra, standing for agriculture, Topia is being this ideal community, ideal spot. Mm-hmm. And without agriculture, or without a really thriving agricultural community here, we're really just Topia. <laughs> <laughs> and that just, that just seems lame. So what drives me is that I see the magic that happens here, uh-huh. and I know it can be 10 times more magical. And it just needs some attention. It needs the right people. And I want to be a part of that. I want to help curate that because Agrotopia has done so much for me personally. And it's kind of my way to give back. The foundation, the Johnson Family Foundation for Urban Agriculture, of which all this farmland is basically being operated under that drives me every day because, well, first, I really love to be part of something bigger than myself. And in the past, I've donated my time to the Phoenix Art Museum, which is a fantastic cause, and it was lots of fun. But I live in Gilbert. I don't live in Phoenix. And so I was commuting and spending a lot of time there, which I loved it. Mm -hmm. But I literally have this opportunity to do it in my own backyard and to benefit the Your people that I lit. Yeah, but my own backyard and the people that I love and do life with and hang out with, I get to try to make it better for them and the greater community. Wheat. And I get to help people like Tim, who's our head farmer, realize mm-hmm. his dreams. I mean, I'm not, I, I, that sounds a little cheesy, but. Not at all. Like, I love the fact that, that we get to help people place them in things that I know they're going to thrive at yeah. or be excited about. Yeah. Wow. That's huge. That's what gets me up in the morning. Yeah. That's a huge gift for you and a huge gift for them and the community and all over the place. Oh, well, thank you, Greg. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Well, um, a couple of, uh, it's been, oh, I guess it's only been a little over a year. I 
went to New York City for a week, and I was there on vacation and sightseeing and stuff. And I went to Brooklyn Grange, which is the rooftop garden in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. I recommend anyone that ever goes to Manhattan, they need to go and experience that. And I picked up their book just kind of randomly. I I can hardly get through like technical books. So I've picked up farming books and I put them down almost immediately. (laughs) I prefer watching things on YouTube in terms of trying to troubleshoot the farming side. Mm -hmm. I love a good story. I love a good like personal triumph or I love biographies. And so I picked up the Brooklyn Grange book, which is called The Farm on the Roof. It's written by one of the founders of Brooklyn Grange. And it's just inspiring because here I am in this, let's just say, charmed community with agriculture happening with a very supportive family backing up what we do here. But the Brooklyn Grange story is like, they just, they use the term, they just muscled it. They just Mm. started from nothing and Mm -hmm. they just had this, and it was just a band of friends and they were engaged with community. And it just goes to show how much you can get done with nothing, with the start of nothing and how they just got through it. Yeah. So it's a fantastic story. It also gives you a little tidbit on how they became successful and solvent because farm stories are often, you know, it's a losing game. The margins are small. You can have crop failure, which will completely wipe you out. But they just kind of talked about how to capitalize on what you have and where their successes are and where their failures have been. And it's just a really great story. Wow, nice. And they all come from different backgrounds, Mm -hmm. too. And then having this group together of people from different walks of life and different educational backgrounds and different work backgrounds and how they're all there for a common purpose, like how much can get done. It's amazing. So those stories are always great. So I highly recommend The Farm on the Roof. Wow. Brooklyn Green story. You should be be their marketing person with the way you spoke about it. Oh, my God. It's a really phenomenal place. Like you talk about how pretty this place is and this Mm -hmm. place is gorgeous. Don't get me wrong. But this farm that's on top of is like 13 stories in the air or something like that. And if you're on there on the top of the roof and you look back and you see the Manhattan skyline, it's it's one of the most prettiest city views I've ever seen in my life. And I've been to the top of the Empire State Building, and that's okay. (laughs) But the Brooklyn Grange, there's something magical about it because you're surrounded by this agriculture that's in the the middle of a city. I don't know. It's beautiful. Cool. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Oh, man. Go with your gut. Find something you're passionate about. And if you find something you're passionate about, go for it. And you probably won't work a day in your life. I mean, it's not work. I remember waking up, waking up when I was a paralegal, I would wake up in the morning and I would push the snooze button like a million times. Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to go. It was a negative environment. I was in family law and it was just real negative. And part of it is your attitude, but part of it's your environment too. So I get to come to work and I get to watch things grow. And 
it teaches you patience. So I, I don't know. There's, there's something cool about it. I, you should follow, follow your passion. I'm not really even sure if this is my passion. I think for now, my passion is trying to create the best community, being a part of creating the best community that I can mm-hmm. for my friends and my family. Yeah, well, you're lit up so, about uh, it. Yeah. <laughs> we can hear it in your voice. Oh, thanks. This is a great model and a great place to live. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for joining us on the show today. Yeah, absolutely, Greg. Anytime. So how can our listeners get a hold of you and find out about Agritopia? Yeah, we're on all social media channels. Instagram, probably your most up-to-date and lovely information, which would be Agritopia Farm. We're on Facebook as well, the farm at Agritopia. And we have our website, which is www.thefarmatagritopia.com. Um, I'm pretty accessible via email, which is Katie, K-A-T-I-E, at agritopia.com. And we have events going on and farmer's market. And we have a CSA. We're just always looking for I'm ways to engage it. community. Yeah, we're, just, we're trying. We're trying. Awesome, awesome, awesome. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash agritopia. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and every place you find podcasts. Also listen to urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.